Hey, Dylan here, host of Future Perfect, a radio show and podcast broadcast live on Triple R in Melbourne every Monday morning. On this very first edition of the show, how does a new organisation formed by a diverse group of Jewish people hope to recast the narrative in Australia around the devastation in Gaza? Max Kaiser explains. Also, we talk Indonesia's elections with Professor Tim Lindsay as a former military strongman, Prabowo Subianto, prepares to take over. I also explore how you might be able to access free financial counselling if you're doing it tough in this cost of living crisis. You'll also find a really fun chat with the newly minted Australian Children's Laureate, Sally Rippon. And rounding it all out, what's in store for this year's Brunswick Music Festival? Thanks for listening and enjoy. The Jewish Council of Australia is a new body set up to address racism and anti-Semitism in this country. It arrives, of course, at a particularly heightened moment when criticism of Israel and its horrific military campaign in Gaza, which has killed tens of thousands of Palestinians, can be conflated with charges of anti-Semitism. At the same time, there are real dangers around the growth of the far right, which of course carries particular dangers and, and uh, I suppose, memories of, um, of, of the Holocaust for Jewish people. Dr Max Kaiser is one of the founders and an executive officer of the group, and to talk through why and how it all came about, he joins me now on the line. Welcome, Max. It's great to have you on at Triple R. Have we got you there, Max? Yeah. Can uh, you hear me okay, Dylan? Uh, yes, loud and clear. So okay. we do have a number of Jewish representative bodies in this country. Tell us how your group is different. Yeah, great question. Um, well, that's precisely why we decided to set up this group is because, as you say, there are a number of um, Jewish organisations, Jewish rep- organisations claiming to be representative in Australia. And we thought that actually, despite their claims to be representative, uh, they're not actually that representative of all of Jewish opinion um, and all of, uh, yeah, Jewish ideas uh, in Australia, despite claiming to be. Uh, so, and we've seen this really clearly, um, particularly since October 7th, that uh, a lot of these so-called Jewish representative organisations have basically become Israel lobby groups uh, and that they very much conflate the idea of um, what's in the interests of the Jewish community with what's in the interests of, of Israel. Um, and they say that any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic or is against Jewish people. Uh, and, yeah, we we knew that there was a lot of Jewish people in Australia who um, were very, uh, very critical of Israel at this time and who definitely don't think that these representative groups uh, speak for them. So we thought it was really important to intervene in the debate and to put forward our own independent expert opinion about what is anti-Semitism and what isn't and where our sort of political priorities need to go in order to combat anti-Semitism uh, and in order to disrupt some of the damaging narratives that are put out by some of these uh, representative organisations and mainstream media and that it also get echoed by politicians. Yeah, and I mean, there of course isn't just sort of one Jewish perspective and, and some of the things you've just said go to that, that, you know, the, the representative bodies that might get, get quoted and put on particular platforms through the media and the like might be 
telling a certain story about Israel and, and you know, legitimising in some respects what's been going on in, in Gaza recently as well. Your group is made up of, of course, a diverse range of Jewish people. How do you sort of, I suppose, account for that sort of diversity of perspectives while also making sure you're true to your ideals of representing something that is distinctly different from what is out there currently? Yeah, I think that the the key sort of difference really between us, well, one of the key differences between us and the representative bodies is that we, we actually aren't, although we have opinions that we think are reflected in this sort of significant minority of the Jewish community, we don't claim to be representative. Um, it's not a democratic organisation. There's no, we weren't voted by anyone, um, but we're independent experts. And so within the council, there is not 100% agreement on everything, but we definitely sort of share um, some common values and common purpose um, and a particular and common understanding of, you know, why we need to have clear vision around anti-Semitism issues at the moment and why we need to have clear vision around what's going on uh, in Israel and what's going on in Gaza. And um, within that, we all have our, I suppose, special areas of expertise. So I um, am a historian, and that's the, sort of my background and what I sort of bring to bring to the issue. Whereas, yeah, my colleague uh, Sarah, for instance, she's a, a lawyer, uh, and um, she really brings that sort of legal perspective. So, yeah, we 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 sort of bring different opinions are at different different levels of expertise but but share some common values yeah and i mean you are a historian and you published a book in 2022 uh, called jewish anti-fascism fascism rather and the false promise of settler colonialism and i noted that you know in some of the reading i've done around your research that in 1942 there was a group formed called the jewish council to Co- combat fascism and anti-Semitism, and I couldn't help but noticing there's some similarity, I suppose, in the name of your group, the Jewish Council of Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about that group and whether that sort of similarity in title was deliberate? That is a really good question. Yeah, they, um, it's it's become a funny thing for me as well because both of the organisations basically get shortened to the Jewish Council and mm. people are always talking about the Jewish Council. Uh, I have to say that I did not have a part in naming the Jewish Council of Australia, that this was uh, something that that, <laughs> that, that uh, happened without my active input and um, that uh, I think the people that uh, did name it did not, uh, weren't, weren't consciously trying to uh, emulate or refer to the name um, the Jewish Council to Combat Fascism and Anti-Semitism, but there's sort of a nice resonance there, I suppose. Uh, and the, the Jewish Council to Combat Fascism and Anti-Semitism was, yeah, as you say, set up in uh, the early 1940s and um, was a very active, very popular uh, organisation, did have uh, hundreds if not thousands of members, uh, had sort of active committees of doctors and lawyers and a whole um, big range of engagement from across the Jewish community. And uh, it uh, had very strong, I guess, left-wing progressive anti-fascist ideas about how we combat anti-Semitism. And that was very much about 
uh, joining with other groups, other oppressed groups and other um, um, progressive groups and seeing anti-Semitism as not something that sort of stands alone, but that is a type of racism and that is a type of racism that's particularly associated with reactionary, in this case, fascist um, politics. So some of those ideas certainly um, are very similar, uh, despite it being sort of 80 years later, uh, some of those ideas are very similar to uh, the Jewish Council of Australia. Yeah, and I'm interested in, in I suppose, your current sort of advocacy, given what's going on in Gaza currently and and especially, you know, what has happened and, and, and may happen in Rafah, which could potentially wreak even more devastation on, you know, an incredibly impoverished and, and vulnerable um, population in Gaza at the moment. That's in the southern area of Gaza where around 1.5 million people are and where at least you know it was intimated they they might be safe there. What is the I suppose Jewish Council of Australia's position on what's unfolding currently in Gaza, and what do you see as your role in terms of you know critiquing and and criticising the the really horrific offensive that Israel has launched in Gaza? Yeah, that's a good question. The <clears throat> obviously, yeah, we are. Um, object in the strongest possible terms to Israel's military actions um, since October 7th and the uh, entire invasion of Gaza uh, and the destruction of Palestinian life uh, in what the International Court of Justice has found to be a plausible case of genocide. We are, because of not just because of our histories, but also thinking about our own histories as um, many of us are descendants of Holocaust survivors or people who escaped um, Nazi um, Nazi Germany and um, Nazi-dominated Europe. Uh, we see that as being uh, part of our duty uh, as Jews in Australia to speak out, particularly when our own government has been in different ways complicit with uh, what is unfolding as, as, as a plausible case of genocide. So we think that the Australian government has a real case to answer, particularly in light of the International Court of Justice ruling, that there's a real danger that Australia um, is complicit in in the unfolding genocide and uh, we think that yeah there's a really strong case uh, that uh, needs to be made to the Australian government that they can't rely on this idea of a Jewish a united Jewish community who is um, supporting Israel in everything it does right or wrong. Uh, they actually need to acknowledge that there's diversity within uh, the Jewish community and that uh, there are strong Jewish voices speaking out. And that often seems to get lost uh, in, in the media and, and in um, discourse by the Australian politicians that they use the Jewish community somehow as an um, excuse for inaction. And, uh, yeah, we, th we, we think that we had an important uh, role to play in speaking out. Speaking with Max Kaiser, Dr. Max Kaiser, I should say, an historian and executive officer of the Jewish Council of Australia. We're talking about the launch of that new group and, I suppose, plans for them going forward. And 
It's been, you know, an incredibly, uh, I suppose, polarising time, uh, you know, when people sort of talk about what's happening in Gaza, there can be charges of anti-Semitism levelled at them and there's been some community unrest over the past few months stemming from what's been unfolding in the Middle East. I mean, what do you sort of make of, of the fact that I suppose there have still been you know, lots and lots of people heading out to the streets of Melbourne, you know, rallying in a way to condemn the actions of Israel and express some kind of solidarity with Palestinians. I mean, is some of the the reason for being of the Jewish Council of Australia to provide, I don't know, maybe more of an outlet for a way to kind of keep these two competing visions or or maybe lessen some of that polarisation that can really kind of take root when particularly there is, you know, a version of a Jewish perspective that is, is demonstrated or, or presumed to be the singular Jewish perspective because of the way that media organisations might go to the same old people, for example? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that there's a t- been a tendency, to be honest, by a lot of these Jewish representative groups, but also it does get reflected in the media, to somehow paint this as an ethnic conflict mm. and or a racial conflict and, and in terms of how it's played out in Australia that it's sort of Jews against Muslims or Jews against Palestinians and yes exactly as you say we we want to say well no it's it's not it's it's not that at all it's a political conflict um, and there are strong voices within the Jewish community who do support Israel but there's also strong voices who don't, and uh, in terms of those big rallies and things, if you look at if you look at sort of the makeup of them, they're incredibly multicultural, and there's people from uh, all all walks of life, and uh, you know families, and yeah, people from all over the world, um, and uh, including Jewish people who, who who go, and we've seen that also in. Uh, the, the pl- proliferation of the different um, community groups for Palestine that have arisen um, all around Melbourne in terms of the, the different council areas and the different um, groups. Those are some of the most sort of multicultural um, groups you can find all united around a, a, a common cause. Um, so there's, uh, yeah, there's a, a real value, I think, in terms of the the role that we're trying to play is by opening up that space where um, people from different backgrounds can come together and um, unite around common things and that, yeah, we can really dispel that narrative that it's somehow a a racial or or an ethnic conflict, which is really damaging. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just lastly, what's the vision of the group going forward? You've put out some some press releases in relation to sort of what's unfolding in Gaza at different times. You've only been around for, for you know, a short amount of time for a few weeks. Where do you see this going into the future? Yeah, as you say, it's pretty... Um... It's pretty evolving in terms of in terms of where we go next. We've been really, really hardened by the response that we've um, gotten. So um, you know, there's been a ton of emails and messages and things, and lots of people coming out of the woodwork and um, giving us their support, and uh, you know, asking how they can get involved, and just seeing how um, yeah, how valuable they they think the group is. So our task really is to to build on that. I think the focus of the council going forward is probably 
to the not not exactly to be focused so much on um Gaza and uh and sort of advocating uh around a ceasefire which is certainly part of it but more focused around uh issues of anti-semitism and racism in sort of a long-term uh a long-term way mm. um that we think that there's a really uh yeah, that there's a really important role to play for an independent expert Jewish voice uh, to have a critical analysis of anti-Semitism and how it interacts and intersects with other forms of racism in Australian society and also forms new coalitions and um, new new ways of working together with uh, other different groups. So that will be sort of some of the, the main focus that we have going forward and and continuing to disrupt this narrative around uh, that uh, somehow criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, which has really sort of taken hold and um, needs needs active combating. It's been really great having you on the show, Max. Um, well done on getting the group together and all the best for it. Thanks very much for having me, Dylan. Triple R. Unless you study accounting or have a weird obsession with money, you probably don't have a great grasp of the ins and outs of managing finances. This has particular repercussions in times like these, with high inflation, spiralling rents and the price of utilities and groceries, leaving many with few pennies to spare. And it might feel like paying someone to help you with managing finances will only add to the burden. But there is a way you can access this assistance for free. Zil Hovengel warkope is an Executive Officer with Financial Counselors Victoria, and to tell us more, Zil joins me now on the line. Hello, great to have you on Triple R. Thank you very much, Dylan. My pleasure to be here. And so first up, tell us about Financial Counselors Victoria. What do you do? All right. So Financial Counselling Victoria is a peak membership body for the profession of financial counsellors in Victoria. Um, we represent uh, the, the interests of members in, insofar as supporting their professional development and advocating for sort of systemic policy uh, to improve the lives of people living with hardship uh, in Victoria. Uh, so we're also focused on listening to the uh, feedback and, and insights from financial counsellors who are working with people in the community so that we can understand, uh, I guess, what they're seeing on the front lines of hardship in Victoria uh, and then we can communicate it to the wider public and to the government to help inform policy reform. I'm probably ignorant, but I have had this sense that those who might go and see a financial counsellor are those with, you know, maybe diverse and complex investment portfolios with property, maybe someone who's come into money suddenly and wants to know what to do with it. But has there been sort of a role for financial counsellors, especially in, in really helping people deal with difficult situations owing to their financial situation? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Thank you, Dylan. So um, a, a very common misconception is that financial counsellors and financial advisors are the same thing. Financial advisors are the sort of the long-term planners and accountants who can help people with quite a lot of money to manage it more effectively. But financial counsellors are there to help anyone who's experiencing financial hardship to get back in control of their circumstances, whether they've got uh, home loan debt, credit card debt, personal loan debt, whether they're behind in their utilities payments or if you're just struggling to manage your weekly budget, um, you can come and talk to a financial counsellor, which is a free service provided by government through community service agencies uh, all across Victoria, uh, and they can help you to have a, a clear-eyed and empathetic assessment of your 
situation so that you can get a sense of what options you have available, um, what pathways can get you out of debt and how you can get back in control of your circumstances if you're experiencing hardship. And a lot of people are experiencing hardship at the moment. Talk us through what it actually looks like if you do access a a financial counsellor to help with managing your money. What actually happens? Yeah, so typically um, a great uh, entry point for somebody who has maybe debts or is experiencing financial hardship is to call the National Debt Helpline, which they can call on 1-800-0000. If you call that number in Victoria, you'll be um, put in contact with a financial counsellor who can talk to you a little bit about your circumstances and can give you some advice on the phone, um, which might help you and that might be all you need. Um, well, sorry, which will help you, and that might be all you need. But if you need some more more uh, in-depth assess- assistance, then they can pr- refer you to a local financial counselling agency in your community. Um, and when you go and have a meeting with a financial counsellor, whether it's on the phone, in person, or over Teams or Zoom these days, many of them are offering... Um, They'll do an assessment of your financial situation. They'll have a talk to you about your budget. Um, they'll have a talk to you about any debts that you've got, any arrears payments you might be behind on, um, and they can kind of just help you to put together a really clear and succinct snapshot of what's going on for your situation so that you can make decisions that are really informed and supported by a, an expert professional who knows where uh, hardship arrangements can be found or where uh, additional um, government support entitlements might be available or even just help you to really think about your expenses in a way that means that you're making informed decisions that are going to help you to get out from a position of debt and hardship back into a position of control and confidence with your financial situation. I saw that calls to the National Debt Helpline have increased around about by 47%, which in a way is not surprising given the cost of living crisis and how so many of us are you know, really noticing the cost of things increasing. I was also sort of casting my mind back to COVID and when the demand for mental health support and and counsellors and psychologists was really through the roof as well. Do we have capacity to manage that that surge in people accessing these services? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So um, financial counsellors across Victoria are struggling and have been struggling for some time with the sheer volume of um, of calls uh, and, and client complexity. Um, as we know, as as, um, mortgage, uh, as interest rates have gone up, as inflation's gone up, groceries have gone up and utilities have gone up, while uh, rents have gone up and availability has gone down, um, all of this has been a bit of a perfect storm to create this affordability crisis for people across all economic segments of Victoria. I mean, um, to, so... Uh, in response to that, many more people have been contacting financial counsellors, but not only that, when those people have been contacting financial counsellors, they've been having um, difficulty with multiple debts, multiple arrears, which adds to real complexity for financial counsellors um, and really means that they uh, are both dealing with an additional volume of callers or, or contacts uh, and at the same time dealing with a lot more complexity within those cases. So what we're quite concerned about as the peak body for financial counsellors is the, the possibility of burnout and the ongoing burnout and further burnout um, 
uh, across the sector, while at the same time wanting to make sure that everyone who needs to access the service can. So we're trying to ensure that people who are in that situation know that there is help available, know that they can contact the National Debt Helpline or they can go on our website um, and find a map to see a local agency if they'd like to get in touch with their local um, support provider. Um, but at the same time, we're also trying to advise that this surge in demand for our, for services and the surge in complexity is adding real strain on the sector and really need um, illustrates the need for longer term, more sustainable support for the sector to continue to provide uh, the, the high quality free service to people experiencing hardship that's needed in Victoria because we know that um, rates have gone up harder and faster than expected and they've been taking longer to come down. They're, they're staying up and they're going to stay up for some time and inflation has been relatively sticky. So cost of living has been a real real problem for many people and it's going to stay that way for some time. Uh, and we really, really want to make sure that um, we can get on the front foot to respond to this hardship and affordability crisis in Victoria. Yeah, and we're, we're just about out of time, but I'm sort of interested in your perspective on how well we do financial literacy, because it can be seen as a kind of personal failure if, you know, you are struggling or you're in debt and that sort of thing. I mean, is there a need to be more open about these challenges that are often caused by failures in the system rather than some kind of personal failure? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, there is not great financial literacy um, training for people through school and out of it. Um, and there's absolutely, you're completely right, a lot of stigma associated with managing finances. So at the same time as people aren't necessarily getting as much support as they, they really need and, and ought to be provided with, they're also told that they're a failure or, or that there's something wrong with them if, they've not man if they're struggling. Now, people in uh, an affordability crisis will be struggling even if they're the best money managers uh, in Victoria. Um, everyone will be struggling when everything becomes a lot more expensive. So um, almost like the sort of the mental health revolutions over the past sort of 20 years where people have become to come to terms with challenges around mental health and the recognition that it's very wise to seek help when you need it. So too, people should seek help when they need it from a financial counsellor who is non-judgmental and who can both train you and provide you with the tools to be in control of your circumstances, can listen to you and, and not provide any judgments on you and can really help you to both manage your current situation and learn the tools and financial literacy to continue to be in control of your circumstances going into the future. Yeah, and if you want to access some of those resources, Financial Counselling Victoria has them available on their website and the National Debt Helpline one 800 Zil Havenga-Walkhope is the Executive Officer over at Financial Counselling Victoria. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Dylan, and thank you to the listeners. Triple R. Sally Rippin is Australia's highest-selling female author of books for kids. She has around 100 titles to her name, including the Billy Brown and Hey Jack series, available in some 18 countries. All that and plenty more makes her the perfect choice as the new Australian Children's Laureate, which she was just named earlier this month. It's a massive role running for two years, and to tell us more, I'm so happy to be joined by Sally in studio, and many regular listeners to The Great Farm would know that, of course, Sally, you were the co-host of our Reading Room segment for some time, so it's nice to be acquainted with an old friend. It's so nice to be back, and, and what lovely circumstances to be here. Absolutely. I mean, you've had so many successes as an author. Where does this rate? 
oh, this is like the the golden prize. <laughs> this is kind of something that's career uh, a career highlight for me. Obviously, you know, I, I love writing for children. I love connecting with children. I more recently wrote a book for adults, parents, and teachers. But to be recognised by my peers in this way, and to think that I can be given a platform to travel around the country and talk about all the things I'm passionate about is just super exciting. I'm still buzzing. Yeah. Well, tell us about for those unfamiliar with the Australian Children's Laureate. What does it actually involve? So in my role, I get to choose my mission and I feel quite passionately about kids who struggle to learn to read. And that comes from a few different parts of my life. Most importantly, my youngest son, who's dyslexic and was later identified as being ADHD um, and who got through primary school without really having the reading skills he needs for life. So initially, as a children's author, I thought, oh, the only way I know how to address this is to write books he might want to read, which is where a lot of the books I've written began, using accessible language and and interesting stories to engage struggling readers. But as he got to high school and I saw how much the not having the requisite reading skills you need for life can affect everything because everything requires reading. I recognised that there was so much more that I could have put in place earlier. So I want to be out there talking to people about all the way we can support these kids and ensure they don't fall through the cracks. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it's such an interesting kind of story that's got you to this point and that's something you explore in your first book for adults, Wild Things, which is kind of a memoir of sorts that was published last year, 2023 or 2022? Uh, The year before, I think, actually. Last year was a bit of a write-off for me for many other reasons. Yeah. Time has flown. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I imagine for those kids who do struggle with reading and school, they, you know, they might act out, they might then be seen as a troublemaker and someone who just uh, sort of isn't interested in, in reading and might be penalised for that. Was that kind of the experience that, that your son had at different stages through schooling? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I call the book Wild Things. And mm. the subtitle is How We Learn to Read and What Can Happen If We Don't. Because I had thought, oh, well, that just means he won't be a reader. His older brother's a reader. I'm a reader but look you know he'll find other things he's good at but if you can't read you can't engage with learning and if you can't engage with learning school just feels like a waste of time or even worse you can feel daily like a failure and that was certainly what was happening for my son particularly when he's once he got to high school in primary school you can have one teacher looks out for all your strengths and you know makes you feel good about yourself but in high school you you were the different teacher every 40 minutes and you've, you've got organizational skill issues as well as well as all the teenage hormone stuff coming in so my son's behaviour really started to decline. And that got me really thinking about behaviour as information because, of course, we're quick to label behaviour as good or bad. But I think even if I'd looked at some of his behaviour as a young child, being the class clown and being very funny, a lot of that was to deflect from the challenges that he was having. So a lot about what I talk about in my book is actually looking at behaviour and particularly within your own child. A parent will have a gut feeling, mm. you know, a child will start saying things or, or maybe, you know, wanting not to go to school or showing some anxiety. And that's a really great sign that that's a good time to actually start to look at what's going on for them. Yeah, because reading is so much more than just a nice thing to be into, isn't it? And I suppose for those who really love reading, it's unimaginable to not be interested in that kind of thing. And you kind of accept, well, maybe that's for me, it's not for other people. But it is a life skill that really sets you back if you don't develop. And that can lead you down, you know, a whole bunch of really troubling paths, potentially, if you aren't able to kind of go and study or even, you know, fill out forms if you're heading to Vic Roads or something like that. Like, they're real challenges that impact how you sort of move about daily life. So, I mean, how do you begin to tackle that as the Australian Children's Laureate? 
Well, I think there's a few things that I'm really keen to get information out there, and that is I'm not sure many people would have seen that the Gretan report came out last week and identified that there are a third of children that will get to the end of primary school without having the reading skills they'll need for life. A third? Yeah, yeah. which is pretty alarming statistic. And so early intervention is the number one thing we can do, and one of these things that they really want to push for is to screening as early as possible and, again, as we go into high school, just to find these kids that may fall through the gaps and may need extra intervention. Um, literacy specialists within schools are really great. The other thing, as you were saying, we need reading for everything, but also we're really judged on our capacity to read and mm. be able to express ourselves through language. And I notice this with my son. You know, if I joke with you, Dylan, I'm not very good at maths or physics. We can have a little bit of a chuckle about that. But if I were to say to you, I'm not good at reading or writing or spelling, people quickly judge that. And so I could see within my son's mental health decline that a lot of it was that just that he didn't believe he was intelligent. And yeah. so he was teaching himself university level calculus in year 11, but couldn't past school because he couldn't write an essay on Shakespeare. So, wow. you know, there's a lot of judgment and stigma around reading capacity within people, which I'd really like to challenge as well as my term as the laureate. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something else that, that you've said since, uh, you know, it, it became public that you are the Australian Children's Laureate for the next two years, that, you know, reading doesn't just need to be reading on a page, that you can engage with stories in many different ways. And I mean, oral storytelling is a very old tradition that, of course, precedes uh, text on, on paper. Um, so it's surprising to me in some ways that the Children's Laureate would be looking to these different ways of engaging with story that's not just reading. But speak, speak to that. How do you think that melds with your, your role? Well, I think it's really important to recognise that despite all our good intentions, there will always be kids that will fall through the gaps or just find reading a challenge. This could be because they're dyslexic, it could be because they're vision impaired. And so we really need to think about how we share stories. And I used to be very snobby about my kids being on computers and very smug about my older boys being such good readers. But it's actually through the internet that my younger son was able to teach himself physics and university level calculus yeah. because he could find things he was engaged and interested in and now he's obsessed with Japanese anime that he'll watch in the original version and read the subtitles so I had to get past my idea of reading is just something with books and ideally that's what we want for children because books you know they, they don't just um, engage our intelligence and our thinking skills they also help us with empathy and to understand what it's like to be another person in the world but there are many ways we can share stories and sharing stories is really important and so I think part of what I want to do as the laureate is accept that there will be kids that fall through the gaps, but let's not let them lose that love of storytelling or sharing their own stories and experiences. Yeah, speaking with Sally Rippon, acclaimed children's author, well, author of adult books as well, it turns out, um, as of a couple of years ago, and the brand new Australian children's laureate, a role that she will be in for the next two years. And, I mean, if you don't develop those reading skills, it, it, it is that sort of stories that you sort of miss out on as a person sort of you know living life as well it seems almost too straightforward a question but why are stories important I guess stories are how we connect and I think we need this more than ever. I think um, one of the things that I did to try to understand my son's experience of the world a little more was to use social media as a positive way and actually following self-advocating people in the neurodivergency field. So people with autism, um, people with just living with disabilities and people with dyslexia as well, just and ADHD, which my son was also identified as having. And hearing their stories helped me understand what their experience mm. of the world is. And 
essentially for me that's the basis of storytelling is actually to understand what it's like to be someone else. And so I think it's really important that we share our stories, that we find platforms to be able to express our experience of the world. Hopefully a lot of those will be in books, but there's many other ways to be able to do that now. And, you know, I think I was lucky enough to work on a book with Eliza Hull, who's a beautiful musician and disability advocate, and she talked a lot about when she was a child, she didn't see herself represented in stories. She needed a wheelchair to get around, and so we created a book called Come Over to My House just to show what lives are like for people who live with disability. And it's such a simple concept that when you're invited into someone's house, like Come Over to My House, you get to see how similar and different our lives can be and, and really make connections in that way. And that can really build empathy as well, isn't there? I mean, I, there's research indicating that, that as we engage with stories, walk in someone else's shoes, you then feel more inclined to support them or um, sort of understand where they might be coming from if they seem a little bit sort of weird or, or other. Absolutely. And I think also it's very hard to other people when you can understand their individual experience and particularly people who may be challenged to express themselves in ways that we're used to or we think of as socially um, Adequate, I suppose, yeah. in a way. You know, that I know particularly um, nonverbal autistic people m- need to find other ways to be able to talk of their experience. And there's that incredible film that came out a few years ago, um, How I Jump, or I can't even remember what it's called, but I'm sure listeners know of it. And it really is, you know, accessing the lives of what it's to be a nonverbal young adult in the world. And it blew my mind. It's like mm. I had never known that was what this particular experience was like. And so there are many ways to share stories. Film, of course, is another great way to do it. And so really what I want to champion as a children's laureate is reading, of course, is the number one thing we want to try to get right as our kids are young. But if we miss that gap, let's ensure that these children can still feel connected. Yeah. And I really sort of love that you're here talking about this because over the years when you came on Grapevine as a co-host of The Reading Room, you'd bring in some authors who were the Children's Laureate for that sort of two year period and now that's you and I mean each of those authors brought their own perspective and their own focus their own priorities I suppose are you tapping them for information and and tips on how to navigate that or are you kind of just charting your own path well I'm very good friends with Gabrielle Wong our last children's laureate and I know she was a lot about children really tapping into their imaginations which is such a beautiful theme to have Actually, I think most of the children's narrates I know quite well. And I got a lovely text from Morris Gleitzman after it was announced saying, if you need anything, any information from an ex-laureate. So there is a lovely sense of community within the children's book uh, community already. But certainly I feel like apparently once you're a laureate, you're always a laureate. So I'll always be the eighth Australian children's laureate, which just feels like an incredible crown to wear. Do you have a crown? Uh, (laughs) A medal? I don't know. Yeah, a few people ask me that. I might have to work on that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, I mean... I mean, you sort of talked about the importance of story and that's something that you've been heavily invested in for your whole career. Do you have time to write over the next two years? Great question. I'm a little, yeah, I I do feel slightly nervous about that because obviously first and foremost I'm a children's author and Mm. um, that's the most important thing that I do in, in my life. So I have got an online calendar with the Laureate Committee where I've just blocked out a couple of weeks each month, which is my writing time. And I figure this has been a very busy month, doing a lot of media, uh, the program launches tomorrow at the Wheeler yes. Centre, all of those things. And so I'm looking at March for a couple of weeks to put down, you know, bunker down and really get some writing done because it's a very different way of being. And I would say a lot of creatives feel like this, that very external, extroverted way is not necessarily something that works well with that quiet, introspective space basic daydreaming, thinking of ideas. It feels like a very different space to live in from being in a room and, and writing. 
It really is, yeah. And I, I'm sure a lot of creatives can identify with that. I imagine for musicians there's that performer side of you and then there's the creative side as well. Yeah. And they often don't sit very cleverly together. You know, it is um, something I often struggle with. I need to block out times for both. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you have written books for different age groups and we mentioned that your book Wild Things is your first for adults. I mean, are you putting a particular focus on any kind of writing at the moment? I'm sure you can't sort of talk about specifics, but, but where is your sort of motivation at these days? I think eventually at the end of the laureate, I'd like to try to write another book for adults. Yeah. It was such a outside my comfort zone experience writing that book. It's also very personal. I put a lot of memoir yeah. in there. And so it made me feel quite vulnerable. But interestingly, that that's the thing that people have most responded to. And I really realize that not only do we connect through story, but also through authenticity and vulnerability. And one of the things that it started out as a book exploring how we read, and I think it opened up more to the neurodivergency and an understanding of what that might look like and how we can celebrate neurodivergency. And so I think maybe for the next book, I'd really like to explore that a bit more about the overlap between creativity and neurodivergency, because I think more and more, particularly since lockdown, a lot of creative people are coming out recognizing that neurodivergent themselves. Some people may have seen that beautiful press club talk by Emma Ruciano about having identified as ADHD. So I think, yeah, it's, we're in a really interesting time where we're seeing how important it is to have different types of brains and different ways of seeing the world. And I think we just need to now create a world that means that all these people can feel that they fit too. Absolutely. And have you found that since writing Wild Things and now that you've got this explicit focus on supporting kids who might struggle to read for different reasons, that there have been a lot of people reaching out to you just wanting to connect or maybe wanting some advice who have had some kind of similar experience, either for the themselves or for their kids? Yeah, very much so. I was even finding that before I wrote the book, which is partly why I wrote the book, because I'd already begun to speak a little bit about feeling challenged in the classroom if you couldn't access the learning that was being given to in a certain way. Mm. And I would do that through my storytelling. For example, Polly and Buster. Polly is a witch who struggles to learn to read, which means she messes up her spells, makes her not popular in class. (laughs) But I would also say in talks that, that I believe that Polly was most likely dyslexic, but in their world, they didn't really understand dyslexia. And so many children would come up to me afterwards and say, sometimes quietly, but sometimes also with pride, I'm dyslexic, I'm like Polly. And that's just a great example about how storytelling for children can help them see themselves and help them recognise that, yes, there are certain confines where your difference may be a challenge, but sometimes when you get out of that, you can really thrive. And that's certainly what I really try to show in all the stories that are right for kids. Yeah. Well, you've got to thrive in this role, Sally, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, And, I mean, you mentioned that there is sort of an official party going down at the Wheeler Centre tomorrow where um, I think it's free, but bookings are essential if you want to head along. Are there still tickets, do you know? Or? I think the li- the Wheeler Centre might be booked out, but mm. there is a live stream, a live stream particularly excellent. that schools can access. So if you just go onto the Wheeler Centre website, you can find the details of how to do that. And we'd love to have you along. And I think certainly the recording will be up there at some stage too. And I'm hoping to get around the country and meet a lot of you as well, which would be just wonderful. How exciting. And I mean, do you have sort of contact details or what's where do people sort of become aware of your schedule I suppose over the next few years will that be publicly announced and yeah so there's an ACLF website the Australian Children's Laureate Foundation where you can stay updated with where I'm going to be and what I'll be doing next and I'll try to keep my own personal website pretty updated (laughs) too (laughs) fantastic well you have very generously brought in a couple of books from your extensive back catalogue as well that we can give away to a lucky triple R subscriber so we've got a copy of Wild Things your memoir published 2022 
two, we said, yes, didn't we, a couple yep. of years back? Um, and also School of Monsters, Wheels and Springs and Moving Things. So if you are a Triple R subscriber and want to get your hands on those two titles, you can give us a call, 93881027. I will take a number at random. Sally, congrats again. It's such an amazing accomplishment. Um, and, yeah, it sounds like an exciting but busy two years ahead. It's super exciting. Hopefully I can come back and keep you updated. On Absolutely. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Dylan. <laughs> okay, cheers. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Indonesia is set to have a new president with the former army general, Prabowo Subianto, claiming victory in the country's recent elections. It brings to an end the 10-year rule of Joko Widodo, also known as Jokowi, who served the maximum two terms. And this event raises a lot of questions about the future of Indonesia's democracy. Prabowo is a controversial figure accused of human rights abuses when a special forces commander in the Sahara regime. And since then, he has served in government as Jokowi's defence minister and had three unsuccessful tilts until now at the presidency. It's a fascinating turn of events for one of the world's biggest democracies. And to help us understand the implications, I'm very happy to be joined by Tim Lindsay, director of the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at the University of Melbourne. Hey, Tim, thanks so much for being there. Thanks, Dylan. So how is it that someone with links to former dictatorship who at one point was exiled from the country can rise to the top job? I think uh, Prabowo Subianto, soon to be President Prabowo, is a master at reinvention. He, he was... In 1998, he was the son-in-law of the then President Suharto, head of the authoritarian regime, the New Order, and he was a special forces commander. So he wasn't just a senior military figure. He was uh, a member of the first family, in fact, by marriage. Um, and when that regime began to fall apart, he was responsible for, or rather the, the brigade of men he led was responsible for kidnapping, abducting, uh, torturing and disappearing uh, a number of students of whom 13 have never returned. Um, shortly after that, as the regime began to disintegrate, he was implicated in efforts to destabilise the regime by trucking um, provocateurs around and stirring up the riots that tore Jakarta apart and led to the collapse of his father-in-law's government, allegedly because he was trying to position himself to take over. And then when the new president, Habibi, was sworn in, he drove up to the palace with, with trucks full of soldiers uh, waving a pistol and got stopped at the last minute from getting to the new president. So he had a, a wild background. Add to that the fact that special forces under his command in East Timor and Papua were accused of human rights abuses, tried and some were, in fact, convicted. He himself has never faced charges for any of these things. Mm. But he was... In, in 1998, thrown out of the army, cashiered. And the feeling against him was so strong that he had to leave Indonesia and go into a sort of voluntary exile living in Jordan for years. And yet, despite all of that, this was 1998, in about 10 years' time after that, by 2009, he had invented himself in Indonesia as a wealthy business figure, had founded his own political party called Galindra, and was in a position, suddenly to make a bid for the highest office in the country, or at least the second highest, as vice president running on a ticket with the former president, Megawati. And that's an extraordinary political um, reinvention, a return from nowhere. So he, he lost... He, sorry, go on. 
No, I was just going to say, absolutely. And I mean, do you have a sense of how he was perceived when he did sort of re-enter the fold, so to speak, and had this attempt to sort of reinvent himself as someone who was a political figure in a very different Indonesia to the one that he was involved in in the late 90s? Yeah, not just a... Um not, not just a, a reinvent himself as a, someone acceptable in society, but as someone who could make a credible bid to be the leader of the country. Yeah, it's mm. quite extraordinary. I think we have to keep in mind that he is a, a, a real Indonesian blue blood, a member of the elite. His family claims descent from a national hero who fought a rebellion against the Dutch in the 19th century. His grandfather was a prominent uh, leader of the Indonesian independence movement who set up the country's first state bank. His father was a very well-known and highly respected economist who was a minister of finance, a minister of trade, a minister of research in the government. His brother is a very wealthy businessman. So, I mean, he is about as elite as you can get. And so I think he just had to do his time away overseas after what happened in 1998. And, you know, the elite welcomed him back into its fold pretty quickly because he comes from this distinguished family and that's that's sort of the milieu in which he moved. So however he did it, and he's quite a remarkable and pragmatic person, uh, he is smart, he is uh, flexible, he is, as I say, pragmatic in the end, he managed to reposition himself. Now, that bid for vice president with former President Megawati, they lost it badly. But that didn't stop him because he tried again in 2014, this time as a presidential candidate in his own right, running against the current outgoing president, Joko Widodo. Um, he lost that. He tried again in 2019. Uh, and he lost that election as well. And then after that, he challenges it in the constitutional court that leads to riots in the city that... The capital city, Jakarta, which leads to uh, about eight people being killed. And then suddenly, reinvention occurs again. And the next thing Indonesians know are news announcements that he's uh, actually made up with his bitter rival, President Jokowi, and he's actually become a member of his cabinet. And there are pictures of the two men joking and shaking hands as they reconcile, and he does it again and becomes uh, Minister of Defence of Indonesia, which is what he's been for the last five years. Um, it's such a fascinating turn, turn of events. And, I mean, what makes this all the more incredible, I suppose, and that sort of makeup of the relationship between Jokowi and Prabowo Subianto is the fact that Jokowi's son ran as his, his, his deputy, essentially, vice president. He is 36 years old, and there needed to be a constitutional court intervention for him to be eligible to run as well, which is, is highly controversial. So how is it that their relationship sort of became so cosy? Well, that's a really good question, Dylan. Uh, And we have to remember that they're bitter, bitter rivals and that their previous election uh, contest polarised the country, led to people dying. The the answer is that both men are highly pragmatic politicians and both of them worked out that the best way forward in the future was to join forces. Now, that's because Jokowi's come to the end of his second term and there were efforts made to get him another term but they didn't go anywhere. And he's now anxious to protect himself and his family, to try and maintain his political legacy, but also to keep political power. And it seemed, it's obviously become clear to Jokowi that the best way to do that is to join forces with Prabowo and the best way to cement that is to put his son on the, the ticket as Prabowo's vice presidential candidate. And from Prabowo's point of view, 
doing that means that the whole block of votes that belong to Jokowi, and Jokowi is still hugely popular, mm. 70 to 80 percent, even though he can't run, that huge block of votes from his former deadly rival would now shift across to him. And so a deal was done, a political deal was done, and the only problem then was, as you point out, Dylan, that Jokowi's son, Gibran, was too young to run as vice president. And so luckily for this whole scheme... The Chief Justice of the Constitutional Court just happened to be Gibran's uncle, Jokowi's <laughs> brother-in-law. And so, surprise, surprise, he presides over a decision which reinterprets the law to let someone who's previously been um, the head of a regional government, and Gibran had been a head of a regional government, to, to run for vice president. And so, controversially, uh, very controversially, he's suddenly allowed to go on Prabowo's ticket. Now... This was a blatant conflict of interest. The Chief Justice should never have sat on that case uh, and presided over that decision. And, in fact, he was sacked as Chief Justice as a result of the conflict of interest. He's still, still on the court, but he was sacked. That's how bad, obviously bad, the decision was. But the decision held. And so when the election comes round, the presence of Gibran Jokowi's son on Prabowo's ticket means the Jokowi votes go to Prabowo. And, ironically... In other words, Prabowo's former bitter rival secures Prabowo's victory. And from Jokowi's point of view, his son's the vice president, and that gives him some access to power in the years ahead. It's yeah. a pretty cynical exercise. What a saga. Speaking with Tim Lindsay, Professor Tim Lindsay, I should say, he's the director of the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at the University of Melbourne, talking all about the elections in Indonesia, presidential elections that has resulted in Prabowo Subianto, uh, will set to become the new president of that country. And before we get to the implications of, of Prabowo's win, I want to talk a little bit about Jokowi's legacy, because, I mean, I remember being in Jakarta not long before Jokowi became president. He was governor of Jakarta at the time. There was a huge amount of um, excitement about this figure who, you know, was doing things differently. It wasn't from the kind of establishment families that so many uh, Indonesian politicians sort of were at that time. Um, and there was a sense that he would really combat corruption and kind of clean things up in Indonesia. But I understand, you know, as his his second term has, has drawn to a close, there's been democratic backsliding, yet he still remains a very popular figure. I mean, how will Jokowi be remembered going forward? Yeah, well, that's, I think, what Jokowi's worried about and one of the reasons why he decided to join forces with Prabowo to protect, to keep his his influence going into the future so he could define that legacy. But, look, yeah, I think you're right. Jokowi was seen to be a clean skin person not compromised, a person who respected democracy and human rights. But, in fact, that turned out to be wrong. In the end, Jokowi proved himself to be not much better than most other politicians in the sense that uh, under his watch there's been very significant democratic regression in Indonesia. The Constitutional Court, which is meant to be a guardian of democracy in Indonesia, has been undermined through a whole lot of um, changes to the conditions, the tenure of judges. And as we've, as I just told you, his brother-in-law gets appointed to Chief Justice and <laughs> makes a whole lot of decisions that are clearly unethical and improper to suit the family. The Anti-Corruption Commission, which was a very important institution in Indonesia, which is a very corrupt country, and was seen as fearless and courageous and making a real difference in exposing corruption at the highest levels, having got members of every political party, former ministers, uh, a family member of the previous president and so on. That's been gutted, essentially, under Jokowi's watch. Uh, 
In addition to that, critics of the government have been targeted for um, dubious defamation hearings that are criminalised and so forth and persecuted in other ways. So democracy has not fared well under Joko, who's seen a shift towards a more authoritarian sort of interpretation. I'm not saying it's gone to an extreme, but Freedom House and all the other democracy ratings now consider Indonesia to be a fragile or weak democracy. That will only continue under Prabowo, who is, has in the past been quite explicit that he doesn't like the democratic reforms introduced after his former father-in-law, Suharto, fell from power and would like to return to that system that Suharto ruled with. So um, I think Indonesian democracy is in a very dangerous state. I think it's highly likely that the democratic regression that we've seen under Joko Widodo will increase significantly under Prabowo in the years ahead. Mm. And what about any implications of, of the change in president for Australia? And Prabowo is someone who's very well known to sort of Indonesian watchers and, you know, members of, of government who might have dealt with him as defence minister. Are there likely to be any kind of significant changes or shifts at all in terms of the relationship between those two countries? Well, I, I mean, I think the, the human rights allegations against Prabowo are pretty serious ones. Mm. And I expect that he will face protests when he travels overseas, although he didn't, hasn't had that much difficulty as Minister of Defence. In the past, he was he couldn't get a visa to go into the US because of them, but once he became Defence Minister, they sort of looked the other way and, and let him visit because of the diplomatic implications of blocking a Defence Minister. So, I mean, he's never faced trial in relation to those allegations, and he denies them, although he has... He certainly admits involvement in those events, but he denies responsibility for human rights abuses himself. Uh, also, during the elections, Prabowo ran on a sort of cute grandpa image, but he's not a cute grandpa. He has previously been quite clear about his aspirations to a more assertive nationalist Indonesia, and he will be a... Um, I think increasingly authoritarian president, and that will be difficult for Western democracies to deal with. He's he's quite a fiery person. He's a temperamental person. His uh, emotions can change very quickly. He's quick to anger. But on the other hand, uh, he has spent a lot of time overseas, including as a child. He is at ease, I think, in the Western context in uh, in and he has links into the militaries in the US and Australia. So he's not, he's in some ways more international than many of his colleagues in government in Indonesia. And above all, he's clever, strategic, and pragmatic. So uh, I think the West will take a deep breath and decide to continue dealing with Prabowo. But I don't think it's going to be easy, and I think there's going to be it's going to be a fairly difficult relationship to manage in the years ahead. Are there significant checks on his power? I mean, you mentioned some of the democratic backsliding that's happened in, in recent years in Indonesia, but to what extent can he kind of mould the government in his image? Uh, to a very significant extent. Under President Jokowi, Jokowi managed to engineer the construction of a coalition in the national legislature, which controlled roughly between 70 or 80% of all the votes. Um, and I think Prabowo will be aiming to achieve a similar sort of alliance in the national legislature. If he does that, then basically 
not much can stop him. Uh, if the president proposes policy and the, the legislature agrees with it, then there's no other real force in the country any longer that can say no. The constitutional court, as I said, has been weakened and undermined. It could, I suppose, still technically um, uh, strike out some legislation, and it probably will, but I doubt that it will on really major policy issues. Mm. Um, I also think civil society, which has a long history in Indonesia of being very active and of monitoring government and criticising and holding it to account, I think they are deeply worried about this. I think they're afraid of Prabowo, and justifiably so, and they are going to start being very, very careful about what they say and do because many of their colleagues have already been charged, prosecuted, um, and they, they'll see themselves next in the firing line. So I think there's a chilling of civil society going on now, which will reduce checks and balances on government. So I, yeah, I think Brabowa will have a great deal of flexibility. The only thing really standing in his way is Megawati, ironically, his former running mate, because Jokowi's decision to put his votes behind Brabowa um, is problematic with her because Prabowo was a member of Megawati's party. Mm. Sorry, Jokowi was a member of Megawati's yeah. party. And by backing Prabowo instead of Megawati's candidate, he has basically betrayed them. And so I think Megawati, who still leads the largest party with about 20% of the legislature, will probably go into opposition. And she will be, I expect, the, the only real point of opposition in the country against Prabowo. Yeah, and someone who's been around for, for quite some time as well. Jesus. And not... And not and not someone who's particularly interested in human rights either. Yeah, it's such a fascinating, well, situation over there and really appreciate you helping us understand it all. Well, I mean, well, Prabowo formally takes office, I think, October, is that right? That's right, yeah. Mm. And we're going to see the time between now and October we've filled, uh, we'll be taken up with negotiations and deal-making, uh, all sorts of... Um, arrangements being made to build that sort of alliance. So the people who supported Prabowo will be expecting lucrative positions, positions in cabinet or in senior government agencies and so forth. The people who are on the other side, Prabowo will make decisions either to bring them on board by offering them positions and access to money or will isolate them and push them out of government and punish them for it. Then how that all pans out will be decided before October, we'll have a very clear idea about how the government's going to be set up and run by then. The big question will be what they do with Megawati. Mm. It's been so great having you, you know, spend so much time with us, Tim. Uh, it's been really informative. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure, Dylan, any time. Triple R. The Brunswick Music Festival is set to run very soon from March 3rd to 10th. It's uh, once again a cracking lineup with a bunch of great local gigs and some pretty exciting internationals playing at some familiar and maybe less familiar venues across the inner Melbourne suburb. Juliet Lally is the festival's music programmer and joins me now in studio. Hello. Hey, thanks, Dylan. Big congrats. The festival is just around the corner. How does it feel? Yeah, it's really exciting. Two weeks now, I think. So, yeah, it's coming up really soon and it's been months and months of work. So really excited to kind of get in there, see everyone at the shows and, yeah, be amongst it all. Totally. And this is the first time you've programmed it, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, my first year. Yeah, wow. yeah. So, it yeah, it feels really nice to kind of 
be a culmination of, of work for a long time. You know, been doing curation for a long time now and to kind of have this project, I'm a Brunswick local and, you know, it's, I feel really connected to this community. So it's exciting to be curating for all of them. So where do you start when you take on this new role as programmer for a pretty sort of big festival um, involving a lot of venues and lots of different musical acts as well? When you've got a blank calendar, where do you, you start? Yeah, so we kind of did a lot of scoping work over a couple of months but really we looked at like what do we want the festival to be about what do we want to bring difference to it so um yeah this year I really wanted to bring more sort of multi-art form events um look at how we could service all sorts of parts of the community so you know we want shows for the kids but we also want shows for people that like experimental music um, and also for, you know, people that like indie rock and going to kind of heavy shows. So was really thinking about who is our community and how can we service as many of them as possible and sort of probably put as many people as possible from the community on these stages so they can kind of see themselves um, yeah. reflected on those stages. Yeah. And as someone who's sort of lived in Brunswick and, and been a booker at sort of venues around Brunswick for some time, what is it about the suburb that sort of excites you as, as a place to curate a, a festival? Yeah, I mean, it's really diverse and there's so much going on in kind of a fairly small area. Like you walk down Sydney Road and every second or fourth shop is is a music venue or somewhere where you can hear live music. So um, I think something that's really unique about the area, but about um, Nam Melbourne in general, is that, you know, you can go out on a Tuesday night and see someone amazing um, and Saturday night you can go to three shows in one night all in the same area. So, yeah, I think that's really exciting. There's a lot going on in a small sort of area. Um, and, yeah, we wanted for the festival to really bring so much of that community into it and curate with them and, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, some of the gigs are in venues that are kind of open all the time and might sort of host, uh, you know, lots and lots of shows throughout the week, but others don't tend to have as much live music as well. How do you go about thinking through what places might be suitable to, to have different kinds of events? Sure, yeah. So I think we really wanted to... You know, we looked at this as this is a festival. It's the Festival of Marybeck and Brunswick. So we wanted to put music in as many places as we can. Um, so just sort of thinking about where would I like to see a show? Where would we as the team like to see a show? Um, and also, I guess a festival of this size gives the community an opportunity to be welcomed into spaces that they may not have experienced or been in before. So I think a good example is we're doing a show at the Coburg Town Hall, so extending the kind of peripheries of Brunswick for, for this special show. And, um, you know, our offices um, um, are around that area in Coburg and um, we're going to have a show in the Town Hall using this amazing old pipe organ. Um, so it's something that people might not know is even there because yeah. it's sort of under the stage and can be brought out. Um and the first time I saw that, I was like a kid in a candy store. It's just this amazing old analogue instrument. Um, Those organs in suburban town halls are insane. Because, I mean, incredible. a lot of people would know about the grand organ at Melbourne Town Hall. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I worked for a long time at, at a hall in the southeast suburbs, and that had a similar, this really old organ that would come up through the floor. Mm -hmm. And there was, a you know, an organ society that came and played it every week, but no one else really knew about it. Yeah, it's exactly that. So, yeah, like I said, I've lived in the area for a long time, I've lived my most of my life in the far north of <laughs> of Melbourne and and like didn't know that that existed and it's really amazing old instrument there is an organ society at the Coburg one too but um you know they do things like silent film nights and that's how it sort of began its life this mm -hmm. organ um playing for silent films but 
it's just, yeah, a really special piece of, of history, really. And I think that's another important reason why we wanted to do this show is to kind of like bring people into the history of this instrument and this part of the community. Um, yeah, and we've got the Australian Art Orchestra doing a really exciting um, new composition on the organ. Fantastic. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of people out there would know that it's a, you know, it's a tough time for festivals and venues at the moment, cost of living issues and, and other uh, things that are kind of stretching different venues as well. I mean, it, it's really brilliant being able to put on a festival that has, you know, some free shows and some that are ticketed. So there's something for, for very different kinds of people, I suppose, and people with different means. What do you see as the role of a festival like this in not just supporting the individual musicians, but the whole ecosystem around live music? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. And it's kind of a huge one. So you're right. Like at the moment, it's an incredibly hard time for the community in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, especially when we're talking just about the music community, um, tickets for even massive festivals and shows are not selling. No one really has much disposable income. It's, it's pretty hard out there. Um, and, you know, our smaller venues are really struggling. Um, bigger venues really are too. So I think with a festival like this, we really want to um, book those bigger things as a way to treat the community, but also as a way to bring a lot more people into the community mm. so that, you know, maybe someone could come here for a week and see one big show and then see a number of shows at a lot of the smaller venues. So that's sort of something that I think is really important about what we do is sort of bringing more people into this area um, and introducing them into those smaller spaces as well that are so integral for the ecosystem. Totally, yeah. Well, talk through some of the... I mean, it's always unfair to ask a programmer or a booker about their highlights, but sure. what are some things that kind of stand out that you want listeners to, to know about? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, if we're looking at um, sort of a smaller venue and local venue scale, which are some really important shows, I think there's about 40 of them at my last count um, all across the week at all sorts of venues. Um, there's a really fun one at Brunswick Ballroom on Thursday the 7th, which is um, a show with Psychic Hysteria and It Records. They're doing a seven-inch launch, a shared seven-inch with Kong Josie and Hearts and Rockets. Excellent. What a um, team. Yeah, it should be really fun. <laughs> really good team. And, you know, I've, I've worked with, with Kurt a lot on doing shows for BMF in other years when I was working at the retreat. And, um, yeah, that kind of label feels really integral to the community and um, really love supporting Kurt and what they do. So, yeah, really excited for that one. Yeah, Should good really friend fun. of this show as well, been on quite a few times. Yeah. Hearts and Rockets, yeah. And, um, and there's some, I suppose, at the, at the other end of, of the sort of the local vibe, there's, I mean, Yothi Indy is mm -hmm. playing as well at Estonian House. Yeah, pretty special one. <laughs> totally. And some yeah. internationals as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, one show that I'm really excited for is, again, on the Thursday night, we've got um, Witch from Zambia. Um, playing um, their first time here, but you know they've been making music in all different iterations of the band for years and years and years. Um, and I know their record this or last year was a Triple R album of the week, yeah. Zango, and um, really beautiful record. Um, lots of collabs and stuff on there, and I just think it's going to be a really joyous show. So they've got a ten-piece extended band it's playing be an for this one. one, that one. <laughs> yeah, it'll be really exciting. And um, I know programmers say this a lot, but that one really is selling very fast. Um, so, yeah, I'd kind of get on it if people want to go because I think it's going to be an extremely special one. Yeah, but we've also got, you know, we've got a few internationals. We've also got um, another debut from a band called Wednesday yeah. um, from North Carolina. And um, they're at the moment playing at Camp Aloham. Um, I saw some footage on Instagram and it looks absolutely amazing. Yeah, um, yeah they've been, had a really critically acclaimed album last year and um, it's going to be a really kind of heavy, heavy like, riotous show 
yeah, I think that'll be really special. How exciting. And then there's music for Mob happening down at Gilpin Park on March 11, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's the last sort of show of the festival. It's happened um, the last, I think, five years, and it's been sort of a nice way to end the festival in a relaxing sort of setting. Um, And it's always curated with bad apples. So this year we're doing things slightly differently, um, changing the format a bit. So we'll have... Um, a mob market as well alongside that and we'll have food stalls we've got um chef ahead a a palestinian chef um running a food stall there and um yeah it'll be a really nice relaxing kind of afternoon under the gums um a nice way to kind of end the festival once you've hopefully been to lots of shows throughout the week that's right yeah and you've you've, yeah had a really full cup over that week um a lot of people who, particularly I suppose, like live in the area, would be familiar with the Sydney Road Street Party, which has gone for some time as well. It really mm. sort of takes over that part of Brunswick, and there's a lot of stuff going on. That's happening again this time around. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, so it's going to be a massive day. I think we have like a hundred artists across venues and stages performing. Um, goes sort of for most of the day, and then the venues will also fill up at night with some other shows that they're doing. Um, and yeah, we've got six stages again this year on the street plus venue shows. Um, and one thing that we're doing differently this year is that kind of, um, big stage on Glenline road, um, is going to be a world mob stage. So we've got, um, Bumpy and Yorinda headlining that, awesome. which is really exciting. Um, Yorinda just released that album on chapter as well. Album of the week. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> another album of the week. Yeah. So, um, that one's going to be really, really exciting. And I think it'll be a nice way for the community to kind of come together all on that day. It's all free, all family-friendly. Opposite that stage, we've also got a um, Black Dot artist market um, that that Kimbo has organised from Black Dot Gallery. So that'll be a beautiful way to kind of like show your support to the community as well. Yeah, hopefully lots of sunshine as well. Yeah, I hope so. Fingers crossed. Hopefully not too hot and not raining. (laughs) Totally, yeah. And, I mean... I imagine it's going to be a busy time for you, is it? Are you going to be kind of hopping around to different venues and yeah. getting a chance to sort of soak it up and enjoy it yourself? Yeah, or? I'm going to go to as many shows as I can. Um, my calendar is sort of looking insane for that kind of nine days. But, yeah, yeah I'm going to try and pop in and out of as many shows as I can, be in the front row and be amongst it. I think awesome. it'll be really exciting. Well, big congrats. It's Thank a you. very big and full program. Um, lots going on. The Brunswick Music Festival happening from March the 3rd, kicking off with the Sydney Road Street Party till the, the 10th or 11th is the Music for Mob. 11th is the Gilbert last Park. day, yeah, yeah. So that's the sort of Labor Day um, public holiday. Ah, that's right, yeah. yeah. Mix of uh, free and ticketed shows, a bunch of different spaces opened up for music, so you can head to the Brunswick Music Festival website for full details and start um, getting your schedule in order. I've been speaking with the brand new programmer for Brunswick Music Festival, Juliet Valley. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Juliet. Thanks for listening to this podcast version of Future Perfect on Triple R. If you want to get in touch, hit up futureperfectrrr at gmail.com or contact the station via the Triple R website.